Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nectar Series podcast. I'm Jessica. And I'm Ashley. This podcast is a community-building exhibition that collects beautiful stories, sweet like nectar, from members of our community of Western North Carolina and uses them to weave a patchwork of narratives that connect each of us through our common past, present, and future. Hello, listeners. Calliope Stage has a really exciting event coming up we want to tell you about. In August, we'll be presenting our very first live theatrical production outdoors in downtown Silva, North Carolina. We believe the majesty of the Appalachian Mountains houses a tremendous opportunity for new theater. And in August, we will show you exactly what we mean. 23 artists have worked three months to create 10 new original shorts or short pieces of theater. And each of these shorts uh, tells a story rooted in our Western North Carolina region. These writers, historians, choreographers, composers, musicians, and the list goes on, have created some really dynamic pieces, and we cannot wait to share Calliope Shorts with you, our audience and supporters, first, right here in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. So check out our website to learn more and reserve your tickets for those first two weekends in August. They are limited due to COVID-19 seating arrangements, but you definitely don't want to miss this, and we cannot wait to see you at the theater. Welcome to the Nectar Series. Today, we're going to be talking with Enrique Gomez. Um, Enrique is a professor of physics and chemistry at Western Carolina University. He was born in Mexico City and then made his way to the North Carolina mountains um, via the University of California in Santa Cruz, um, where he earned his bachelor's degree and then later his master's and doctoral degrees from the University of Alabama. Um, within Jackson County, he's inv also involved in a ton of other ways, which you'll hear him talk about, um, including being involved with some of the um, elementary, middle and high school education uh, efforts in the area as well as holding star parties in some of our beautiful outdoor uh, areas in the county and in the uh, region. Um, something I loved about talking with Enrique in our chat was just to hear the many ways that he's trying to marry the arts and music in particular with astronomy. So we hope you enjoy our chat with Enrique Gomez today and getting to know a little bit about this incredible community member. Hey y'all, this is Corey Phelps, the education and community lead at Calliope Stage. When I'm not helping plan summer camps at Calliope, I'm the artistic director of Destination Theater, which is a theater company based out of Atlanta, but serving the entire nation. Destination Theater is dedicated to creating excellent and imaginative touring productions for people of all ages, backgrounds, and demographics. We aim to provide exciting, educational, and high-quality theater experiences in communities across the U.S. and beyond. What that means is we are bringing the hit children's show, How I Became a Pirate, based on the hit children's book of the same name, to the hit town, Silva, North Carolina. How I Became a Pirate will be presented on the Calliope main stage behind the Triple Threat Arts Academy. We will be performing live. Doesn't that sound nice? Live theater? In-person events? We think so. So we will see you there on June 12th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Bring a blanket or a chair and learn all about how to become a pirate. Arg. Hi, and welcome to the Nectar Series podcast by Calliope Stage. My name is Jessica Humphrey. And I'm Ashley Wasman, and we are so excited to have you listening today. Um, our guest from the community this uh, episode will be Enrique Gomez. So welcome, Enrique. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show. Yes, we're so, I'm very, very excited for this conversation. Um, so as our guests will, or excuse me, as our listeners will soon find out, um, Enrique is a man of many talents and experiences and commitments and products <laughs> and creations. <laughs> and uh, so I feel like this could probably be a four hour podcast, um, but let's just start with the easy stuff. Um, Enrique, if you could just tell our listeners um, how you identify yourself. Yes, I uh, use he and his uh, pronouns. Um, I'm a Latino man. Um, I am a father, I'm an educator. I am a scientist and I'm an activist uh, in terms of the science research. 
I am an astrophysicist uh, by training and by what I teach and what I do. So those are uh, four rabbit holes that we could go, right? Each one could go in a number <laughs> of things. Uh, they could be really boring. It could be very interesting. Like, and like all good <laughs> rabbit burrows, uh, they are connecting channels. So there, there might be something interesting that might be enjoyable for your audience. Yeah, I think Enrique is going to be able to provide us his own patchwork of many different, as you say, rabbit holes. <laughs> yes. And all of those sound interesting yes. to me. <laughs> we need a four-parter here. <laughs> so right. Enrique, um, can you maybe start uh, now by just telling us um, why you're here in Western North Carolina and how long um, Western North Carolina has been a part of your life? Yes. I've been living in um, Western North Carolina for 13 years. Uh, before that, um, I was in Alabama, and before that, I was in Texas, and before that, I was in New Mexico, and before that, I was in California, and before that, I was in Mexico City. So I am making my way progressively further eastward. But uh, going back to the question, why I'm in, North, in Western North Carolina, um, uh, at the end of my, um, when I got my dissertation, I got my um, uh, doctorate degree in astrophysics from the University of Alabama. Uh, my turn, my interest turned towards education and all these exciting ideas having to do with uh, physics uh, education research, astronomy education research. And um, I wanted to uh, come to a regional comprehensive university, Western Carolina University was a good example of this. Uh, so these were the students, uh, looking at the demographic, these were the students I want to serve. And I am more of a country mouse than I'm a city mouse. Um, I wanted to be in a place where um, it was uh, not in the center of everything, but also not too far relief. And uh, we are uh, within uh, fairly close proximity to major metropolitan areas. So um, Western North Carolina, I had visited this area before. Uh, I fell in love essentially with the history, with the landscape, uh, the geology spoke to me, uh, the uh, history, particularly with Cherokee and uh, the immigrant communities that came in and also the struggles as well. You know, the uh, history of Appalachia has uh, many turns and has, uh, has had a difficult history. So in terms of what I wanted to see possible and show bring uh, all of these implementations on science education that were coming to bear in the late 2000s, I wanted to bring and try it out in a place and see if I could make a success out of it and, and really uh, fulfill that mission of essentially transforming um, uh, students, uh, allowing them to uh, become creative problem solvers and essentially uh, improve the quality of their lives through their education. That's That was where my focus was. And so you mentioned that the this particular body of students um, at Western Carolina University was um, very attractive to you as far as an educator um, to be in involved in their lives and their education and growth. What specifically about the students that you come into contact with or have come in contact with in your past several years here um, has been exciting or um, challenging to you? Yeah, it is um, essentially is the uh, sort of demographics of uh, students that wanted to, um, we're, we're not going for those big, essentially, uh, big institutions at the center of cities that uh, uh, essentially students that uh, were first generation, I was excited for the idea of making science available to them. Uh, we have a, a fraction of our students at Western Carolina that are essentially former uh, or current enlisted uh, members of the armed services. And uh, these are a demographic of students with particular set of challenges. And yet uh, they have proven to be some of the more interesting uh, students I've had uh, who through their interactions have actually taught me a lot about how to be a better educator. Um, demographic of students that were slightly older. Uh, here in the mountains, we're seeing an increased number of students from Latinx uh, populations as well. Uh, we are also seeing an increase of African-American students as well. So uh, it seems like it was a place that is, is essentially changing, it's being transformed. And uh, that's in terms of talking about uh, being a creative problem solver when it comes to issues of education. Uh, that, uh, I think that challenge was, was the thing that was attractive to me. 
And really, uh, the same could have been true for just about any institution, regionally comprehensive, uh, that would be in a rural area of the South uh, would be. But I think that the mountains were a big, big plus. Well, and so I want to quickly sort of uh, uh, latch on to this word, uh, a transformation happening. And I know you were just speaking specifically to the student population and the campus population, but um, do you think that that's also reflected in Jackson County at large and in Western North Carolina at large? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, this is, I'm also looking at for instance, politics. I, I'm sort of like a politically engaged. I do any number of uh, things in the community, mainly with the NAACP, but other also organizations as well. And uh, for instance, at the um, last election cycle, we saw that Jackson County was one of those counties in North Carolina that was actually identified as being a bellwether in the sense that uh, it, had, um, it had a change in demographics and it had been at odds with in its voting patterns with counties around it. So uh, people of political sciences were, scientists were actually looking at that, that, that place. Another thing that's of interest, which I find kind of curious, is that uh, Culloweedy, um, sort of that unincorporated town where Western Carolina is at, uh, was labeled, I believe two years ago, as one of the top 13 micropolitan um, areas in the country. And I think that's actually kind of very interesting because I had studied about micropolitan spaces, uh, show of uh, towns that were not actually big enough uh, to have um, whole industry uh, that were usually in essentially proximity uh, to uh, other urban areas and yet um, had managed to attract, uh, show of like a creative set of individuals, cultural creatives, uh, new businesses, uh, artists, innovators, things of that nature. So that, that essentially kind of caught my attention. Uh, so there are all things that I think that right now I haven't grouped yet. I haven't actually fully show figured out, but certainly where we are right now, we are in a, a rather special place uh, with a lot of potential. Definitely. Well, and, and Enrique, I just wanted to go back to something you said earlier that really spoke to me as an educator myself in the quote unquote non-traditional students that we're seeing more and more of, thankfully, in our classrooms. And that that has really spoken to me as well in making me a better educator, but also making me a better community member, I think, because I'm not looking at things through my lens. I'm looking at things through the lens of many, many different people. And with that, I just want to ask what you feel is your role in the community in Jackson County? Mm -hmm. I, I just fulfilled so many roles. I did not know. Um, <laughs> right. You, you, you do need to you connect <laughs> all of these bunny burrows to one thing. Well, and I think that, that um, Ashley, you mentioned, yeah, it's all this connection. I guess what I, one of the things that I do in terms of show of my leadership style, I mean, the entire philosophy of being a servant leader, that you are a part of our organization, that you're part of the community, uh, the community, your organization, it has goals. And sometimes you have to kind of uh, set up a process by which uh, people can define uh, what is it that they want to accomplish? What is it that they want to do? And for me, the places where I've, I feel I've been more, more useful is when I can essentially connect people with each other or uh, bring about the resources that they need in order to accomplish what they want to do. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, there are periods of time when, when you're a leader where uh, you don't know and nobody really knows what the organization is or what it wants to accomplish or what resources are available. So uh, I, I think that uh, essentially drawing connections, that's another thing. And um, one of the things, for instance, within the NAACP um, and a lot of the conversations we've been having in the area of Silva and Jackson County and really the South and the country as a whole but, uh, over this past summer, where we essentially saw all this protests around George Floyd and Breonna Taylor uh, and the quick focus that we had on representation of uh, Confederate soldiers, right? Uh, show of uh, a memorial to the Civil War, what function they actually do. And I think that uh, one of the things that we probably need to, to do, and this is something, for instance, that Calliope Stage could actually do, 
is to help tell better stories, tell their better stories about uh, who we are as a people, who we are in community, who we are as individuals. Um, tell more complicated stories, you know, things with a little bit more depth. It seems that often we're caught in, in rather overly simplified stories about who we are as a people. Mm. And I think that we could use at this point in, in the timeline in our history is to find depth. And maybe a two-part question in response to that. How do you think depth is found amongst all the noise? And also, um, how do you think we can create spaces where various members of, of a community can come to the same table and engage in those complex histories and stories and perspectives? Well, there are experiments out there. I don't know if I have an answer for this or even an answer that would be good to hear. But, you know, there's an organization called Braver Angels where um, we've seen how divided our country is around uh, culture, around politics. And uh, it's, it's become rather tried and cliche to talk, to harp about how, how divided we are as a country. Um, I, 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 around 2017, I was a part of a, of um, workshop that was organized by Braver Angels, where the entire thesis was that you have quote unquote people who identify as being blue Americans and quote unquote uh, red Americans. And of course, I'm hating all of this stuff, right? You know, I'm hating the fact that we're divided by color. And uh, I even showed up uh, to this workshop wearing a purple shirt intentionally, you know, the, the kind of <laughs> But anyway, um, but the exercise was actually kind of interesting. And the exercise was that. Um, we're talking at each other, right? And we have this politics of contempt, you know, of how much we uh, dislike uh, not just positions, but each other uh, across political and cultural uh, lines. And a lot of part of this exercise was uh, essentially creating and giving space where uh, people of certain affinities could actually present themselves and um, essentially tell the story of who they are and how they understand themselves and how they are misunderstood by people on the quote unquote other side. Uh, and again, this is about depth. It is about uh, being able to tell those stories. And I think that those, those stories that we have, I think they are problematic um, in the sense that uh, uh, stories that we tell about the origin of our country and the stories that are, um, we tell about slavery and Jim Crow and our each individual uh, show of affinity groups. I, I think that one of the problems that we are facing right now in terms of the stories that we are telling and not telling about each other is that they seem to be inconsistent with the facts, right? That they are, um, that they are, that they are inconsistent about, that there's this schism between our values and uh, what we want to see done and the stories that we tell about ourselves and each other. And um, this is going in a direction I really love, Enrique. Um, and so I want to go back to something you were talking about seeing part of your role in the community, at least based on how you were historically engaged in the community um, as a connector um, or as someone um, who enjoys finding the resources um, and the partnerships um, to help organizations or efforts or individuals succeed. Um, so, so with that tendency or, or that connector perspective. Um, You're the person with all of the names yeah. in the Rolodex <laughs> yeah. in your head. My, my dad is a very similar person where I would come to him with a story or with an issue or, or with whatever. And he says, oh, well, you should reach out to blah, 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 blah. Right. And give me the name, give me the website, give me the book that I should read. He is that type of person. And I can definitely exactly. see that as your role in the community so as well. So connecting people and ideas and resources. Um, if you're looking at our our community and let's distill it down to Jackson County um, and you being a resident and being very involved in that community. Um, what do you see as some of the uh, resources available <laughs> to us as a community to make connection with those sitting across the table? Well, I mean, I, I can tell you what, um, what uh, some of the things that we've done. Um, 
within our Jackson County branch, we do have a rather active uh, religious affairs committee where the idea is that we have um, essentially religious leaders, uh, both uh, professionals as well as the laity. And one of the things that we could do is that uh, religions uh, with all the virtues and faults, one of the things that they do is that uh, they create safe spaces. And, uh, and one of the things, also the things we do is that this is how we, are, we articulate and live out our values, or we experiment living out our values as well. So essentially we have resources in the religious communities that are present, not to exclude anybody who um, uh, hasn't found a religious home or uh, think of themselves to be irreligious or atheistic. But I think that those are shown like the resources as well. And we have increasingly looked at to build relationships with those religious professionals uh, to essentially build those connections and, and open up those conversations, right? Uh, go, go for those depths and go to uh, mm. also a place of vulnerability as well, right? And I think one of the things that's, that's going on here is that um, we don't want to be vulnerable. We have been hurt, right? We have, uh, if you have ever had an argument uh, on a Thanksgiving table or on online communities in social media, or in a place of work, or even in a place of, of worship, people have been hurt a lot. And there might be a circle of the wagons um, mentality that people are doing. So um, what will be the places in between, the places where you can encounter, the places where people can um, experiment with vulnerability, right? Uh, one of the things that you see people lamenting in uh, college campuses is that, uh, you see people essentially go out of way uh, towards creating safe spaces or the students uh, want to be alerted when there's going to be a difficult conversation in a class or on a particular speaker or something like that. And, uh, and uh, maybe one of the things that we need to do is to create braver spaces, places where uh, people can um, be vulnerable, but at the same time, be able to take a risk. And experience that vulnerability, and sometimes you're going to be burned. But uh, the other part of this is uh, um, be able to model resiliency, that uh, you can be criticized, you can be burned, but you're not going to be destroyed, right? Um, you might be hurt for a while, but um, you are still going to be a part of community. And here's the other part of this is that, I mean, we see it, for instance, students on campus, um, some of the white allies, that they may come in with good intentions, but they might, uh, say something in the class that uh, is perceived to be offensive, uh, racist, sexist, uh, homophobic, transphobic, all of that. And uh, they get burned and they essentially, um, um, and, and uh, that creates sort of like a place where um, it's difficult to have those conversations. Uh, one of the things that we maybe need to learn how to do is uh, find a way of saying, okay, well, you know, you said the things that was difficult to, to hear, and uh, there are problems with your saying, but you're still a part of this community, right? These are the things that we can do to uh, remake that connection and uh, for you to say, well, I have learned, right? I did something that, or said something that was very difficult and I created a hostile uh, environment for people. Now I know better, right? And, I can, and please give me a chance to demonstrate to you that I can come back to community and be in relationship again. Enrique, just listening to you, I feel like it's making me a better educator and teacher in going back to my campus. I'm loving this. I want to transition our conversation a little bit into creativity because everybody is creative. Even in the multitudes that you contain, uh, there is creativity in all of those things. So I want to know what your creative zone is, whether that is in teaching, whether that's in activism, where do you feel the most creative? Yeah, that's, that's a fair question. I don't think I have a good answer uh, for this. Um, I think a, a general rule, you know, that I picked up from other people, and I cannot really tell you where 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 I learned this, is that creativity happens at the boundaries, right? Um, at a place of encounter, on the place where uh, two beliefs or two sets of people or two ways of doing things or two traditions kind of touch each other and interpenetrate each other, 
and then uh, finding commonalities or differences are the places where something new could actually come. And let me just give you just one example. Um, I'm a professional astronomer and I went to a conference on um, astronomy education and, um, and also a way of using robotic telescopes. And that's one of the things that I do. I, I do uh, robotic telescopes and I'm exploring that in the classroom. I'm doing it with college students. I've been doing this now with middle school and high school students uh, using robotic telescopes and observe the sky. But one of the things I remember that that one conference I went to is that there was one section entirely dedicated to artists, not professional scientists or everything, but artists, right? And this is what they were doing. These are artists that have done an artist in residence program at observatories or science centers. And uh, without having a science background, they observed the culture inside uh, the subject matter. They, using their, their superpowers as artists, kind of identify what the sounds and the visual culture uh, of a particular profession was and coming up with art pieces that were a specific response to. And there was this one, and I really wish, um, maybe we can put this in the show notes at the end, you know, um, my name doesn't come to me, but there was like this one artist who had essentially uh, done essentially uh, several things. Uh, uh, um, one of them was a choral piece, a choral piece in which he showed the stars and you represent the stars by sounds, essentially uh, musical notes that were sustained by a member of the, of the choir. And I was, and there were other artists that were um, uh, representing astronomical data as sounds. And I came out of this and saying, whoa, that was like the most interesting thing of the entire conference because it was something that was unusual. And I think that one of the things that we struggle definitely in science and perhaps other things is that we have this problem, the problem is representation. We are dealing with very large data sets, like tremendous amount of information. How can we, how can we come up with a vocabulary which allows us to talk to each other about new and emerging pattern and phenomena that we didn't recognize before? That you can get stuck in the same ways of presenting things with graphs or the same language, that the moment that perhaps when you choose to represent it in something else, some new notation, some new method, uh, some new way, so, some new way of uh, presenting the information that all of a sudden conversations that you couldn't have are now possible. And that's where creativity happens. And I think that the moment, for instance, and there are several instances in the areas of physics where uh, when someone came up with a new way of representing the data or a new way of representing the mathematics, that all of a sudden a new breakthrough was actually made possible. So I came out and I came up with this project to essentially test this idea. And I call this the Appalachian Star Song Project. And this is uh, essentially the way uh, that I went about doing this. And that is that um, I essentially recruited essentially kids, right? And uh, to have kind of like a mini uh, summer camp session. And this is what we would do, right? I asked them to take, um, send commands to robotic telescopes, robotic telescopes in Chile, in Hawaii, in South Africa, in the Canary Islands out there in Spain, you know, take pictures of this one star, right? A set of stars that changed their brightness with time, changed their brightness with time. And, um, and so that you capture an entire cycle. And what you do is that um, you uh, represent, instead of graphing this, well, we would graph it. X, Y diagram, uh, X being time, Y being the level of brightness, how bright up here in the sky. Instead of doing that, we're going to use musical notes so that the pitch, the pitch represents the brightness. The higher the pitch, the brighter the star is. So if it is okay, and I'm hoping to be able to, uh, if you will indulge me, and uh, there might be some editing that needs to happen in the background to actually pull this off, but we'll see if I can do this. You guys need to let me know if you can actually see this. I'm going to um, share my screen. I'm going to share an app. And of course your viewers will not be able to see this, but the sounds are there. So what I'm showing you right now, uh, what I'm showing you is a type of star called RR Lyrae. And by the way, where do they live? They live in uh, something called a globular cluster. And a globular cluster uh, essentially made of 100,000 um, 
stars. And uh, for people who cannot see this, most of your audience, I'm showing you a picture of, of what it looks like. And for people who can't see this right now, it looks like a burst of glitter. <laughs> Very much so. Essentially, uh, essentially kind of like a whole bunch of stars all bunched up in a second, but it's actually gl glorious. But let's just take, there's one set of type of star that lives in there called R.I. Lyra. And their brightness changed through time. And they are very useful because by the shape of the curve, notice that there's kind of like a kind of a sawtooth type pattern of the curve of the brightness versus time. And uh, you see that and say, well, there's a way of doing this. Well, let's actually kind of like play uh, with this and actually represent the exact same thing with musical notes. Well, that's absolutely lovely, but uh, there was a way in which we actually do this. I actually asked them to do, and that is that um, I actually asked them using an AI um, from essentially the Google Magenta team to essentially harmonize this exact same piece in the style of Bach. <laughs> so yeah, there we go. So it does sound like Bach. That is so cool. <laughs> Today's episode of the Nectar series is brought to you by Anchor. Our mission here at the Nectar series is to share stories. Use Anchor to elaborate. Anchor provides you with the tools to tell it all. Not only do they provide unlimited free hosting for your podcast, Anchor supports your podcast with blog entries and answers questions on monetization and making your podcast fun and entertaining. Visit anchor.fm to find everything you need to make a podcast all in one place for free. That's anchor.fm. Now, one thing, and, and uh, maybe just um, to, to allow you guys to ask me questions. Um, what I'm going to do in the background is that I'm going to stop uh, my share and actually share something completely different. And that is that I was playing with this and I had students do this and I have a friend who actually plays the Appalachian dulcimer. And I say, well, cool. I'm going to, how about if I give you one of these musical pieces that represent a star that was collected and put together by a student. And um, let's play it in the dulcimer and see what it actually sounds like. Okay, so um, uh, he, this is uh, my friend, um, Jude Laurie, uh, who plays the dulcimer. And a girl named Erin actually played this put this together, and uh, this is the composition. Now, um, there, um, so let me just tell you exactly what is that you listen to. So essentially it was a composition that started by making observations of a star that changed its brightness thousands of years ago. We just received its light. Um, uh, a sixth grader actually collected that data, put it together, matched it with musical notes. And then a friend who plays the Appalachian dulcimer actually put this together. But the last thing, and I think this is kind of interesting, as part of this project, I wanted to see if there were rules of harmonization of composition for the dulcimer that um, would be characteristic of a piece from Appalachia where we actually live. And the thing that I actually discovered, because I actually went around uh, around town and I, I went to the Mountain Heritage Center and I talked to uh, people who um, actually play uh, 
uh, Appalachian bluegrass and ha uh, actually know many of these old time uh, traditional songs. And what I found out is, uh, what I wanted to find out is, is there a center repos repository of essentially all these compositions? And what I was told is that there is no such thing because with particularly the Appalachian dulcimer, it is an oral tradition that is taught by people that uh, do not read or write musical composition. So there's plenty of recordings out there, but no one has actually sat down and actually transcribed those things and essentially created this database as well. But let me just show you exactly what went on. Something that started as an astronomy education project kind of span off and took me in, in a very interesting direction where I learned something about Appalachian music at the end of the day. Now, why the dulcimer? Because, well, I wanted something that'd be grounded in this, in this area, but also uh, when people think about an instrument like that, they, it has a negative connotation. It has a connotation of that it's music by, or an instrument with music or people who are not very educated. And what I wanted to do is kind of like mess with that a little bit, right? Show that there's actually some very sophisticated ideas represented in this. And one of the things I found out, which I wasn't actually expecting when I worked with those uh, essentially uh, five, six, uh, seventh graders in this project is that different types of stars harmonize to different modes where in major and minor in the modes. So when I asked them, well, what is your star feeling based upon this? You know, and some sound, some, some stars actually sounded kind of sad, right? And maybe it's at the end of their lives and they're kind of like uh, mourning their youth or something like that. I don't know, right? Um, so, so that 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 I think that's kind of interesting. Um, um, some something that new that I wasn't actually expecting. But that was a long-winded answer. But I just wanted to just show just the type of like headspace that I inhabit, right? So, uh, in terms of creativity, and maybe that might inspire uh, people out there who are likewise creative to kind of like go down weird ra rabbit holes like this or things that people don't associate and see what they find out. That was a really amazing answer to that question. You just connected a few rabbit holes for us. Um, no, that that's uh, that's a really interesting. Um, that was a really interesting journey inside your mind as well, Enrique. And um, what I guess I was thinking the whole time, especially when you. Um, first started off with talking about a new method of representing information. And uh, we, we were, had asked you about um, how we can create spaces for these more complex stories, these deeper stories. Um, and, and do you think that maybe it has something to do, maybe we should be looking at new methods of representing information and history um, in order to, I guess, um, uh, straddle or build a bridge or connect to worlds in our community. I don't know, that's just what, something I kept thinking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess I'm trying to understand the question is like, how, how do we make those connections or how do we go for depth? Yeah, maybe there's something in that. If we, if, if we as individuals or groups or populations are maybe finding or exploring new methods or new ways of representing information about ourselves or our histories or something like that, or as we're trying to learn about others, histories and perspectives and journeys. Um, yeah, I, I think it comes, a lot of this is, in, I think coming to the body, to show this return to the body, I, I think it's kind of interesting. We just had this whole experience over this whole year of essentially uh, teaching and living and working the museum and finding out that uh, Zoom meetings are exhausting. And one of the reasons why is because the, the bandwidth of information that we are receiving is actually very narrow, that we actually do depend on uh, a body language and nonverbal cues to be able to correctly interpret and to become effectively attuned with each other. Um, I can tell you one, one thing, uh, something that might potentially be interesting. I gave about three years ago now, I gave a show like a talk on uh, healing through cosmological narratives. And um, 
So, so I'm interested in this, this concept I've been playing around. It's called astronomy as medicine. That is astronomy, A-S-T-R-O-N, not astrology, but astronomy, which is what I actually really want to teach. In the sense that uh, the stories that we tell about astronomy, both in terms of the cosmology, as well as essentially kind of like the history of individuals and the cosmologies of many cultures, um, they are actually used in healing ceremonies, like um, the Hopi on the Four Corners area of the United States. You know, they have um, uh, the uh, sand paintings, you know, the Hopi, the Navajo have the sand painting tradition uh, where they are used as healing ceremonies. And what's the substance of the, of the, uh, of the ceremony and the sand paintings? Well, there are stories about the universe. And the Warpiri language group in, in, um, in, uh, in Central Australia likewise has that tradition of essentially using sand painting, doing it pretty much exactly the same thing. Now, I can tell you something in terms of my experience. I, I came in astronomy as basically as an amateur, as a teenager. And one of the things that um, I do enjoy about this is that when I set up telescopes out there in public, say up top of water walking at Pelican, or um, places like that, and um, it's in the middle of the night, and you, you cannot use your cell phone. People should not use their cell phone during a star party. Why? Because it ruins your, your light adaptation. So this seems to be very, very dark. So you set up telescopes over there and you're intentionally uh, killing all the lights. So one of the things that happens when you show people the sky is that their moon completely changes, right? It really is, is, is uh, their, their um, affect uh, changes and um, mm. must be the lighting condition, but also the subject matter. You're experiencing something new, like you're seeing Jupiter and Saturn for the first time, or you're seeing the moon, or you're seeing the galaxies. So the conversations tend to towards um, other things, and they tend to be rather intimate spaces uh, for conversation um, that are very much akin to what happens when people share a meal. Like their guards go down, their their uh, cortisol level goes down, and uh, essentially you have the cuddle chemical, the oxytocin starts to flow and all of a sudden you are embarking on a new subject matter. And what I've noticed about those spaces in the middle of the night, I have had the most in-depth, rich, intimate conversations about uh, religion, philosophy, spirituality, growing up, mysterious things that people have experienced that they've never shared. And, and people, I think that they are craving that. They are craving those spaces. They, they are are craving those intimate conversations. And what we need to do as essentially the cultural creators is um, find new and creative ways in which you disrupt uh, people's um, comfort level and let them uh, experience vulnerability in new and different ways so that those things can actually take place. Ashley, have you ever been to a star party? I have not, but now I wanna go. Oh, they are great. My mom used to take us to McDonald Observatory, which is way out in West Texas. And just just like you said, Enrique, like it, it, the cortisol, like it, it, you, you just feel like you're in a completely relaxed space. And so you can be so open with what you're talking about. And, and you don't even notice because you're, you're that, that vulnerability feels natural it doesn't feel scary like it does in in some spaces that's that's so beautiful Enrique I have a question in that you've told us so many things that you give to the community of Jackson County as an educator as uh, an activist as somebody who is a servant leader in this community but what do you feel like you gain from this community or what can the community do for you well, I, 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 I can take it by, by means of um, metaphor. And um, all right, oh, I don't have the reference in front of me, but this is something that we know about uh, trees that we have been finding out over the last couple of decades that actually um, trees ha in a forest have a very rich social life. You wouldn't believe it. Uh, it exists at a different time scale than you and I are familiar with. And a lot of this happens through a fact that uh, they share a root system and that you have mycelial fibers from fungi that essentially work like uh, connections by which 
say sugars and uh, information can actually be shared. Uh, people talk about the wood wide web in the sense that that information is very widely shared. And uh, for instance, if a new pest or a new disease enters a forest, that distress signal gets communicated throughout the forest way ahead of time. So that trees actually begin to alter their biology in anticipation of, uh, of stress that's going to come from disease. Or when that tr a tree gets felled down, right, or gets hurt, uh, trees around them will actually pass a sugar solution to keep them alive. And you can see why that is, that root system. Uh, trees, especially in steep slopes, um, they kind of need each other to stabilize the soil, right? Uh, to share with each other. And, and they will even work with people from, uh, with uh, trees of different species in order to make that happen. So by means of metaphor, I think that's in fact what's going on here, right? That I essentially are sharing this mycelium network of information, of human connections, of resources, of knowledge. And by spending time cultivating and developing that root network, that mycelial network, um, that helps with resiliency, that helps with stability, that helps with essentially meaning making, essentially the joy of fellowship with other human beings uh, who are both alike as well as different from you. And, um, and that sense of well being that comes from those relationships are the things that I absolutely crave, that I absolutely need, uh, that I cannot get from anywhere else. So I think that all kind of works together. Um, you, it's so, so serendipitous. Um, I've been having many conversations about this exact thing that you're talking about um, with the trees. It is the reference you're speaking of Richard Powers, The Overstory? I, I think it's connected with it, and uh, man, I should have been better prepared for this, but if I can pass that book reference to you all and put it in the show notes, I think that your audience would appreciate it. Yeah, that idea is fascinating, and um, and we're surrounded by trees, and we're surrounded by one another. Um, I, I just think you're right. I think the, the metaphor is, is amazing. Um, at the top of the episode, we asked you your identifiers, and one of the first ones you mentioned was member of the Latinx community. Hmm. Um, so I'm interested to hear about your experiences in our community as a member of the Latinx community. So what, what do you love? What do you see in the growth? What challenges you? Yeah, I, I think that that's, um, we have a very uh, new Latinx immigrant community here compared to other places where I've been. Um, uh, as a teenager coming from Mexico City, um, you know, or coming to California, there was a, already a very well-established Latinx community there. And likewise, when I was living in New Mexico and Texas, that was true. Here, this is something that's kind of emerging. And um, one of the things I'm seeing is essentially the effect of trauma from that first generation of people trying uh, and a community trying to kind of establish themselves and the cultural shock and disorientation that comes through a new place and essentially trying to make those connections as well. So um, I am seeing some, some hesitancy within the community to try to reach out as well, but there, we've, we've done some work. I mean, I've done some work with Centro Comunitario over there in Macon County that uh, has essentially laid out, um, uh, tried to serve as a focus for that particular community. And I've reached out and developed connections with Vecinos, uh, who is a, is a rural health program that particularly targets uh, immigrant rural communities uh, working in the fields as well. So uh, yeah, it's, it's still kind of transient. It's still trying to settle itself. It's still uh, wanting to have a sense of what it could be. Um, there's still some fear, uh, some persecution. Um, there is still uh, some level of hostility and uh, of show like a, a community that's still trying to understand what is the meaning of this influx of uh, people that speak uh, a different language. Uh, some of it, the fact that uh, we have the whole Latinx community, uh, uh, we're all trying to come to grips with the fact that uh, the Latinx immigrant community is very heterogeneous, right? They don't come from 
the same country. Some of them are not even Spanish speakers. Okay, I have heard uh, speakers of Maya language or uh, Zapotec Chatino languages uh, there in Macon County and here in Jackson County as well, which has particular, which have a particular set of needs. Um, I think that there's some possibility as well. And um, one of the things that um, I remember reading about is that uh, there is now an emerging, very distinct, very emerging uh, Appalachian Latin uh, X Latino Latina identity that that is is coming to to bear, and uh, people, for instance, have found out particular dialectical um, language forms that are characteristic of uh, Southern Appalachia that have become incorporated into uh, this, this communities. And when members of this community uh, happen to travel back uh, to places like uh, Michoacan or uh, Irapuato in Mexico, something like that, they bring that with them, right? So I think that we're seeing something that is, is, is very interesting. And, and I always thought, for instance, that places like, um, like um, say Charlotte, uh, the music scene, the Spanish language music scene in Charlotte uh, has a, now a, a very distinct sound uh, that is now different from say Texas or Florida or California and all of that. So, so we're seeing something new emerging out of this. Um, not entirely sure where it will go or how distinct it will come or whether it become sort of assimilated into the larger uh, culture of the area. So expect innovation, expect new things to happen. Um, I'm excited to be a part of it and to be a witness to it somewhat. And and so what can the community and you know what can what can Calliope stage as an organization entering the community do um, to to help or to reach across the table or to um, help the growth or be, you know, supportive of the innovation um, as the as the Latinx population grows and as the Latinx population needs support. Um, no, I, I hear that. Well, Calliope stage, you're all storytellers. That's what you do. That's what you specialize in. Right? And essentially um, creating those spaces by which those stories can be collaboratively developed and be told. And uh, stories about encounter, stories about integration, um, uh, stories about loss, about mourning, right? Um, there is um, a particular issue that I'm noticing is, and that is that um, uh, immigrant communities, well, Latinx communities in general, they are very much uh, family oriented. Um, here in Southern Appalachia, we are also, you know, oriented very much as a family. So this is not an alien concept. Uh, the thing about this though, and part of this disorientation that we're all through is that um, in, a, in the extended communities that gives our identity, you constantly have to interact with people who are elders, uh, your distant cousins, essentially all of that. But uh, the immigrant communities that you see present, you're seeing a lot of young families, a lot of young people, right? Uh, where are all elders? Right, where are those uh, older folks that have the knowledge base that can root us both in tradition as well as how to solve problems? We don't quite have that. Um, I guess in a nutshell, you could say uh, we miss our grandmothers and our grandfathers, right? And that's one of the things that we are missing out. So stories about um, that help us make sense of this disorientation. Uh, and involving the community somehow in the telling of these stories. I think it can be seen as medicine, right? Theater can be seen as medicine. I mean, that's the way it was used in uh, Athens of ancient Greek, right? It's like citizens were actually required to attend group performance and actually discuss them, right? That you are supposed to experience catharsis, right? And recognition about new truths that can only come from the stage, right? Um, that's one of the things that potentially could do. So, um, and it takes a while to build up those relationships. It takes a while to, uh, for people to be safe enough uh, to build that disclosure. But um, that is something that can be done and I've seen it done. Thank you. 
Enrique, we're coming to the end of our conversation tonight, but I want to know from you what you love about Jackson County. Well, it is my home. It is my home. And um, I have a very extended concept of community that goes beyond even human beings, that goes um, into the trees, into the personalities of um, the landscape as well, right? And um, I was having a conversation with a local playwright, uh, Gary Carden, as well. And it's just great to kind of like sit down, hang out with him, and he be able to tell you stories of yore. And he will just go out and tell the stories from in his porch about uh, growing up in Jackson County and all that. And then I'll be listening and hearing the names and personalities and, uh, and, and um, what he mentions like, well, that sounds familiar. That name sounds familiar. Where have I seen this name before? Well, I mean, I, it's, I've seen those names in the cemetery that I go running virtually every other day to train for 5Ks. It's like you run around and you see the headstones and you see the names and it says like, okay, you get to kind of like know that, right? You kind of to be able to kind of like recognize that. So um, being able to kind of recognize the history around you and being able to kind of be moved by that history. Like when you, um, go running around uh, where I usually run and I see, for instance, a headstone of a baby that lasted only a day and there they are. And that loving touch that that family dedicated to that uh, child that lived only a day, right? It's still reflected there. It's just little things like that, that made you realize that you are part of a community, that uh, the sentiments of being in community, you know, the entire dimension of being alive and being human being is at all times present for you. And I see that, I see that with folks that have, were born in Jackson County, whose family have been here forever, uh, people who just came in, right? So yeah, it is, I, I think this is a good place for a, for, a, for, a, for a country mouse such as myself to kind of like um, get to uh, put down some roots and be invested in the success of the community and start to think about the generations to come. Lay out that foundation for people to come to um, Southern Appalachia, find a home, be rooted in the landscape, be rooted in the history, be rooted in the collective experience of other human beings, uh, be rooted in the culture and the music of dulcimers, uh, in the traditions and the family life and the uh, faith communities uh, that have sustained us for so long. Um, I think that's my answer for now. That's a beautiful answer. <laughs> Enrique, where can people find you and follow your work, maybe on social media or a website? Um, well, I mean, I, there are a couple of things I have uh, as kind of like show notes. Um, I'm starting a, a new blog called We Sky, and um, essentially it's affiliated with Western. So W-H-E-E-S-K. SKI. So I just started this, and um, and uh, I'm sure I've been experimenting with with this as a way of not just talking about what people who experience the sky, but also for my students to share some of the things that uh, they have found in the sky through robotic telescopes and share that as well. I, I kind of love that. Another thing that I have is that I do have a Twitter ang uh, handle I, that I use uh, only on occasion, and that is at uh, Prof Gomez WCU, P-R-O-F-G-O-M-E-Z, WCU. And uh, we can put that in the, in the show notes. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Enrique, for joining us. This was such an awesome conversation. It was great to get to know you since I have never met you before. Uh, and I'm sure that Ashley and you will continue these conversations in real life. <laughs> I, I do feel like I could sit down with you for another four hours, but <laughs> we'll have to save that. Um, but again, thank you for your time, um, Enrique. And uh, we're, it was a wonderful conversation. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and having me on. And I wish great success to Calliope Stage and all the work that you're doing in your community. Thank you so much. Thank you.
We loved our conversation with Enrique Gomez, right, Ashley? We did. It was absolutely fascinating. It was so cool. When asking him where people can follow his work and all the things that he's doing, uh, he brought up a new blog called We Sky, spelled W-H-E-E Sky, because it's an homage to Kalawi, of course. <laughs> and it's about all the things that he's doing and his students are doing with robotic telescopes and what they're finding in the sky. It's going to be really awesome. Yeah, I will definitely be checking that out. Um, He has me hooked and now I want to go to a star party. <laughs> yes. He also brought up his Twitter in, or his Twitter handle, which is at P-R-O-F, like professor, and then Gomez, G-O-M-E-Z-W-C-U. Check him out. The Nectar Series podcast is brought to you by Calliope Stage and Anchor. Logo designed by Zachary Alexander. Music by Susan Pepper and Taylor Harris. And editing by Daniel Stanley. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can follow Calliope Stage on Instagram and Facebook at Calliope Stage. For more updates and ways to join our community, visit www.calliopestage.com.